Hi there, it's Tim Lou from Foolproof here. Um, for our next interview, as part of our Experiences on Strategy series, uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie Levy. Jamie Levy is an American author, lecturer, designer, and user experience strategist. She's also the author of the best-selling uh, UX book on Amazon, as we speak, in both uh, the US and the UK, UX strategy, how to devise innovative digital products that people want. So it's my absolute pleasure to be joined by Jamie today. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Tim. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, no. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I'm just really looking forward to talking about, you know, basically how you've, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a real achievement to, to write a book, but actually to write a book that's really sort of tapped into a real demand from our community and, and beyond within the business community. So I'm really interested to talk about that today. Um, J- Jamie, one of the uh, questions that I'm asking all of the people that we're talking to is really, how did you get into experience design? You know, what was your, um, you know, what was your path into the, into the industry? Well, I've actually been doing software design for almost 30 years now. And so um, the short, quick version is I was wanting to be a a female film director at a time. And probably it's still true where it was extremely competitive. You know, I see myself as a a storyteller first and foremost. And at the same time, this is in San Francisco, um, I... Uh, was experimenting with all the new technologies coming out and this included everything from the Amiga computers, um, high-level scripting languages, interactivity, animation. I saw a laser disc and I decided to go to graduate school at NYU in their interactive telecommunications program and my master thesis I decided would be something that would bring everything I'd learned there together and so I created the first electronic magazine on disc for the Macintosh. And so I was basically an interface designer, you know, already professionally working in 1990, you know, before the web browser had been invented. So I had a bit of a head start. And so since then, you know, I've worked my way through all the bullshit titles, you know, interface designer, information architect, you know, interaction designer, UX designer. I mean, but ultimately, I've been doing the same thing, which is uh, trying to create innovative products and trying to have as much creative control in terms of um, the strategy and the design and the experience um, for the last 30, 30 years. Oh, that's uh, you've you've seen an awful lot of uh, change in you know the sort of the impact of technology on the way that people are consuming products and companies, I guess, even. Um, I mean, I, I, do, I do like the sort of the idea of bullshit titles. So, so UX strategy was an idea that I sort of became interested in a few years ago. So what does a UX strategist do? It really depends on the environment that this person with this title works in. I personally work as a consultant and my clients can range from startups to enterprise, but they tend to be more startups or people from enterprise who want to uh, create something new. And they want to do it in a way 
um, that is cost efficient, um, you know, lean for, you know, to use another term that people are familiar with. And so for me, the main thing that we do is figure out, is there an opportunity in the market for this vision that they have? Um, I try, I mean, I have my own methodology and I think all UX strategists who call themselves that and have been in the field for, you know, since the web was born, um, practice their own version of it because we kind of had to invent it just like UX designers did back in the day. But for me, you know, I've, I had a methodology and then, uh, when I, when, after lean started came up, I changed it. Um, so it's sort of hard to answer that question directly, but ultimately it's trying to validate that whoever's vision um, is going to solve a problem um, that people really need solved and then to see exactly if there's opportunity in the market uh, for that product, um, you know, can they get funding or can they get enough user base to monetize it and then figure out everything from how to create like rapid prototypes to uh, figure out what are the key features and then uh, help them with building a direct channel to the customers. So that would be in the context of what I, you know, where I am as a consultant, I, that's giving me, letting, letting me do everything. And I think for people that work in more, more constrained environments and siloed environments like enterprise, they may only get to do some of it. Yeah. So I wrote the book in such a way that you can plug and play techniques as needed because not everybody's going to get to do everything because there's so much, you know, process and politics in an enter enterprise environment. The thing that, uh, in sort of talking about the book, actually, I, th I guess what made you want to, to commit it to paper and get it out there? <laughs> First of all, let me say it's insane to want to write a book. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. It's like the equivalent of having three kids. Um, you know, I've had one son and this took uh, about the amount of time and pain as having three in a row without a break. So the, the issue with writing a book is that we are um, working in a rapidly changing environment in terms of technology. And so it can be outdated very fast. And I had already... I've always been a part-time professor. Like even when I finished NYU, I started teaching one time, uh, one class, and then I would use that as a recruitment uh, tool to choose, you know, the best students at the end to work for me. But the issue was that there was never a book that really explained my methodology when it came to strategy. I wasn't that interested in teaching UX 101 classes after the first 10 years. Uh, so I wrote the book basically so that I could, ha uh, USC wanted a textbook that was from a major publisher and I knew that I was moving, uh, in that direction to, to a, a top 10 engineering school and I needed a major publisher. So, uh, I decided to write the book to originally to be a textbook and then once I realized how challenging it was that I had to give up everything like working, um, even part-time 
and dedicate myself to the book for a full year, sitting in a library, writing it in pieces. Um, the experience of researching the parts of, uh, you know, my knowledge that were weak, such as, uh, you know, the history of, of business strategy. I didn't go and get, I don't have an MBA, so I had to give myself a quick one and read a lot of business strategy books and really the experience of doing the research and then putting my thoughts down to paper over time and, and, and then getting to um, drink my own Kool-Aid, having O'Reilly put the book out in chapters and getting feedback back and seeing my students who for the first semester turn in their assignments and see, oh, they didn't get that and get this and have the opportunity to get to uh, tweak it fine-tune it, and then have, and then at the same time have uh, clients calling me up to try to distract me from finishing my book, and the only way I would agree is if they let me do the experiments uh, that I was writing about in the book so that I could use them as business cases. And so after two years, uh, the book was done. Um, but it, it, would, it would, you know, it's an amazing experience to write a book. I, I wish it happened maybe before I was 50. Um, I could have had, you know, maybe more consulting out of that perhaps, but at the same time, uh, it's an amazing experience to, to get to write that down. Even for a non-writer, I had to have a writing coach throughout the entire experience. I love how you've described the, the process kind of matching the way that we make product, you know, sort of even matching the way that you just describe making products and sort of, you know, sort of having that iterative and, um, getting the target audience to, to use it and, and help refine that. That's, that's great. And it is a real achievement. I mean, I've, 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 I've been through it and it is very, the thing when I was reading it, I was thinking it'd be interesting to sort of hear you talk about, um, you, who, who do you think the book is for? Because actually I think we've spoken before and actually I sort of worry about the sort of echo chamber effect of, UX people, strategists, designers, producing content for ourselves. And actually that's, in a way, that's no good. You know, actually, if we want this to become pervasive and embedded in the way that businesses and organizations work, we might need to be writing, you know, sort of books for business people. I mean, significantly, your book is actually on the business charts, you know, not on the design charts. And I think that's, you know, I look at that with some degree of envy and sort of, I'm kind of, Proud that you've done that. Can you tell us a little bit about your sort of thought process around the audience for the book? Yeah, it's it's um, it's pretty funny because it's exactly what you said. Basically, I started out um, wanting to write a book, kind of to prove myself to people like you and and <laughs> and uh, Paul Bryan and other uh, people who considered themselves experienced strategists, UX strategists, strategists of any type, really. And um, as I was doing the research and as I was seeing the book, um, seeing the homework assignments come in based upon how I was writing the techniques and practicing them with the, the entrepreneurs that I was working with, I realized that the book was actually for the inverse of who I was writing it for, that it wasn't for people like us, that it was for everybody else really. And it, it freed me up to write in my own um, 
you know, I, I guess layman's language in terms of how I, I teach as a professor, I don't, I try to avoid colloquialisms and buzzwords as much as possible. And at the same time, I, I really always try to footnote everything, which I don't see in a lot of other UX books. And so for me, it was definitely um, trying to make a book that whether you're an entrepreneur, intrapreneur, product manager, marketing person, um, UX designer, newbie, which is my biggest audience, strangely, um, uh, to, uh, you know, I've had a person who runs a hair salon say that the book was extremely helpful, helpful for her. And I never thought it would be for brick and mortar people. <laughs> so I, I think, um, the internet, how it's evolved as a marketing tool for all businesses, um, that people need to understand how to do conduct competitive strategy, regardless of what their value proposition is and do customer interviews. And, um, maybe they can't make a prototype for, uh, a brick and mortar store. It's still the experience of, of validation and of finding that opportunity space that people who don't have a business background and are intimidated by it like I was. I mean, now I'm not, but I had to like listen to all those business books on Audible because I can't read uh, very well and they're very dry. Um, so I'd hike and listen and then eventually I learned the vocabulary and now I see my students who, some of them, most of them are English as a second language. They'll get up and present and they'll be dropping words from Blue Ocean Strategy you know, using words like value proposition and, and design words and all, all, all very, um, calmly and in the context of explaining why they chose to, uh, certain design decisions. So I'm kind of happy of, of how it turned out. And obviously based on the, the sales and popularity of it, I think I lucked out in terms of that a textbook, what was written to be a textbook turned out to be a book that appealed to a wide audience. I, I mean, it's definitely fulfilling a need. I think, I think, I think when we were talking sort of, uh, the last couple of days before sort of meeting up today, um, it's a, it's a pretty new thing. So actually people need some reference points actually to jump into the, into the subject, into the practice. So, to sort of having a look, sort of at sort of some of the the parts of the book. So, the second chapter is pretty interesting to me. So, there's a section called "How I Discovered My UX Strategy Framework." Could you tell us a little bit about that? Basically, after even though I had already worked, uh, you know, before the web, you know, for ten years, you know, after the web, um, after the dot com bubble burst in New York and 9-11 attacks, I, I came back to LA and I was totally unemployable as a dot-com CEO. <laughs> yes. And so I had to fake my way into a UX design job um, at what was then called Schematic, um, now possible. And uh, they wanted to see wireframes and so I faked some out from sites I had built. And once I was in there, of course I wanted to, you know, climb to higher ranks so I had could be more involved with product definition and not just be given this deck of, you know, here's a, here's a flimsy brief or here's, you know, a product requirements document with a hundred features. And I had no opportunity to do research because it was an agency, um, with limited budgets for certain, uh, 
things and so I finally got assigned to do the discovery phase of Oprah and I went out to Chicago with the other leads and what I saw was there were aspects of it that were very interesting in terms of consensus building but basically it was like we just dialed it in we just it was like we had a week to create this discovery brief with these bogus personas where we never got to talk to the customers that they were based upon demographic and psychographic data collected by the marketing department. The stakeholders weren't interested in our ideas or even, it wasn't even something that we could uh, really interject into the conversation beyond advertising of how we could potentially monetize their amazing content. Um, everything was just like about turning a static site into a dynamic site but the thrill of just doing this discovery um, phase was amazing. But then immediately it turned into, you know, six to nine months of wireframing and the stakeholders going back to fighting over real estate and who would be in the global nav. And, but I got that taste of what strategy could be. And so I went to work for other agencies that took business strategy seriously, where we could conduct serious competitive um, audits and do actual uh, field research and um, that experience I, I feel like like I, I think I, I say somewhere in the book like once I had that taste of, of, of doing uh, the what became the UX strategy phase I can never be a wireframe monkey again <laughs> no I, I, I feel this uh, I feel the same way I think I've sort of I had that sort of realization in a program of work thinking, actually, I think we, we're just as well equipped to, to drive what this product is or what the value proposition is here as this marketing. And so this marketing guy is probably the least equipped guy, well equipped guy to be able to do that. So we need to, but we need to earn our way into that room and to that, that advisor role. In, in, in chapter two of your book, you talk about the four tenets of UX strategy. Could you, could you talk us through those? Sure. Um, I'll try to do it briefly because there, there are long pages of, of text there. So, you know, every, every methodology typically has a Venn diagram and I present them as four plates on a table, not only because I'm a foodie, but to give you this idea that it's not necessarily these four tenets uh, that they need to be done in a linear order, that it's almost like tapas where you eat a little bit off of each plate and that you do it not only um, at the beginning when you're trying to figure out product definition, but throughout you know, phase one, phase two, that you revisit the strategy because the marketplace is dynamic and changing. And it's competitive. It's very doggy dog out there, out there with people copying the UX. If that's our competitive advantage, so I it the four tenets. I had to come up with a formula to base the book on the ten the techniques on. And so the first one, obviously, is business strategy. You know, understanding which a lot of designers seem to think they live in a bubble and they'll just make here here make this do this. Uh, do this product and they may not think about the big picture. They may not think about, well, how is this ultimately going to 
fit in with the, either the brand or with the product suite of the rest of the products or services coming out from this company and to understand ultimately what are the business goals. And so that's the first 10 is, is really getting people to understand terms like value proposition, how to validate it and how to um, do competitive research properly, not this way that I'd seen at certain agencies where they just do searches and put them in a Word doc with a bunch of screen grabs. Like that's not empirical, that's not methodical. And so I created a, a toolkit that's with my book. It's for free if you go to userexperiencestrategy.com and, it, and it, it basically, you list all the competitors and you go through attributes that range from uh, business attributes to, to UX attributes, meaning something like monthly traffic and funding would be uh, around the business side. And then, you know, how, um, how many clicks does it take to achieve uh, the primary use case of the product would be on the, on the design side. So business strategy was uh, a, a huge tenant. And then after that came validated user research, which leaned heavily on Steve Blank's methodology of customer discovery and uh, Lean Startup by Eric Ries. This idea of validation, taking his build, measure, learn feedback loop and applying it to strategy. That it, it, it's so similar, the crossover. Um, and then also learning about, um, you know, trying to validate, you know, everything from competitive intelligence, but teaching people that you want to start by validating that there's a problem before jumping into a solution. People always think like, oh, well, I have this problem, so everybody else does. Or my manager says I'm going to make this, says this is what the value prop is, and so I'm going to just do it because that's my job. Well, I get that we have to do that to make money, but for me at this point, I want to make sure whether they're going to pay me to do this or not, that it's a problem that needs to be solved and that it's a, a big problem. It's like a migraine problem, not just a small headache. Because if it isn't, then you're talking about a potential small customer segment or one that's hard to reach. And so that's what validated user research is not this like, oh, I have to have empathy for my customer or user and walk in their shoes. <laughs> like, well, great. But if they don't want to buy the shoes, then what good are they really? You know, it's like we need to make sure we, we can empathize with them, but at the same time that they actually have a problem that needs to be solved and that they will spend money or get engaged with our product or service so that we can monetize them or we're going to go out of business. So the third tenant is value innovation. And value innovation obviously is from Blue Ocean Strategy. And it's and if you look at examples like Airbnb and... and um, Uber, perfect examples, is it's this idea of bringing the cost structure or the cost um, of what you're charging. So in the case of Airbnb, it would be perhaps cheaper to rent an apartment and uh, then staying in a hotel, especially if you're with your family and you want to spread out and... and uh, be able to use the kitchen and, and, and these types of things or be in a neighborhood not near the touristy area. And then also um, bring this the, the value of it up. So it's like cost down, value up. And this comes from 
basically a hybrid from Michael Porter's uh, idea of having a competitive advantage where you want to have the cost down and the, um, a differentiation. And so that, you know, people need to really understand that we need to approach product strategy and design not as I'm going to make something that's going to have a million features like a chopped salad, but instead that it's that less is more, that we take a more minimalistic approach to product strategy and put really what's just absolutely necessary. And if you look at Airbnb, it's not like they've added a hundred features to it. You know, years later, it's still like click a button and the car comes and you never have to pull out your wallet and you get from point A to B and it costs less. Uh, so better experience and it costs less. How do you compete with that? Clearly they're killing it. Uh, you know, in the market right now, and that's the value innovation and same with Airbnb. And then lastly would be killer UX. I call it killer because I'm from California, you know, <laughs> killer waves. Um, but killer for me is about, not about like amazing design or genius design, but about understanding things such as conversion about understanding how to build in product marketing into the product so we keep our customers slash users engaged so they don't bounce out uh, either the top level when they're just a suspect that they're actually, you know, they don't put something in the cart and leave or they don't browse and leave, but that they're continuously uh, prompted to come back if they uh, leave or that they love and become addicted to our products and services so that they stick around. That's killer UX. And so all of those things together, basically, to me, add up to potentially having a very strong uh, product or service at launch. I do like, um, I was told a story about uh, Airbnb that sort of very, in the early days when there was sort of there was a number of propositions that were very similar, or a number of startups, very, very similar, probably about 15 startups, very similar model to Airbnb. And when they were sort of asking for initial funding, they were asking for a lot more funding than some of their competitors. And when they were asked why, sort of, there's a couple of things that are linked to what you're talking about. They, were, they thought part of their proposition would hang, hang on professional photography of these fantastic places. I actually spent quite a lot of money on the, on the experience design. I'm sorry, on thinking about the experience of actually someone going in and, you know, falling love with, in, in love with a place that they would want to live in, not, not just stay in, but actually this would be, you know, actually going to that place would actually be a, a big part of my holiday, not just sort of visiting that town and seeing the sights, but staying in this amazing place. And to have that sort of level of thinking about actually what the experience that they were creating on the site I thought was um, had real sort of a real insight into actually what was going to um, be the you know, big part of the appeal of that proposition. You're right and and part and where they got that notion I think is you look at their competitors at that time BRBO, HomeAway, Craigslist and the pictures of course if there were any pictures they were you know, shocked by, you know, people like me who aren't photographers with, at that time, low-resolution iPhone photos, not wide-angle lenses. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, go off and on as a photographer because he loves going to beautiful homes in L.A., 
And basically, uh, that really set them apart. And it's a, I'm an Airbnb host. Uh, I actually drive almost 50% of my income from um, people. Maybe they start on Airbnb where I trial them, but ultimately they become tenants in my guest house. And Airbnb allows them to really see um, you know, whatever, whether it's the guest house or renting my house so I can go on my trip this summer with my son and we're staying in a mansion in, in Paris. It's crazy. Okay. I mean, this is, this is like a huge part, as you just said, of our trip of the, of the value innovation and the transaction was seamless. It's seamless, frictionless. And it's so engaging and addictive. Of course, I'm never going to go back to some other, uh, means I'm not going to go to Craigslist where there's no trust. Uh, who knows what I'm getting? Um, they they really built something that is uh, highly addictive and and truly enjoyable to use and and so I think it's it's a very good business case to to look at. One of one of the chapters in your book is called creating prototypes for experiments, and um, I've sort of yeah, sort of the way that sort of I'm sort of starting to talk about strategy. Uh, not just with my clients, but just with my team, is we need to sort of get people away from this idea that strategy is this sort of abstract concept and there's just a fantastic... You can contain it in a PowerPoint slide and everyone will understand, right, that's where we're going to and we can all align around that and that will give us certainty of, you know, predictability around where we're going and actually the result we're going to get. But rather, that strategy you know, ultimately needs to turn into a thing, <laughs> a thing that people can touch and feel and experience and break and all these sorts of things. And I'm sort of interested to sort of um, uh, to, to, to hear just your thoughts around sort of the idea of strategy producing things. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, strategy for me, or strategy that the, the the point of having a strategy is to, you know, the, the basic definition is, is a game plan um, with the caveat for me that I might have to pivot on certain, my game plan as I learn uh, along the way that I might be moving in the wrong direction. But at the very beginning, we might throw out a bunch of guesses on what we think, you know, what, what is this, what is this vision that we, 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 sought to create and and instead of it being something that is um going to we have to spend all of our resources up front you know whether it's a million dollars or even a hundred thousand dollars how can we figure out um ways to test um what is truly the the value proposition the what i call in there the key experiences to make sure that people want this thing um, you know, what Eric Ries called the minimum viable product, but it's the same idea for me with creating a rapid prototype. Like I've even stopped doing wireframing. Ah, um, <laughs> when, when, you know, I try to talk clients out of it and I've gone back to my early nineties way of, I want to mock something up very quickly. And there's now prototyping tools that are way faster um, then uh, creating a bunch of wires and, and getting them approved. And I don't believe uh, our users can look at wires and storyboards or fake low fidelity prototypes any more than our clients can and truly understand. 
And now that there's these amazing prototyping tools out there, Justin Mine happens to be the one I like the most because it's easy and they have an amazing widget library and I can get it to play on any device uh, I need, but that uh, you can knock out this, uh, this what are the, the main uh, aspects of the, of the value proposition, that we're not doing usability testing with these prototypes. We're not doing, uh, I'm gonna create the entire, you know, linear prototype on rails, taking them from onboarding to the very end. But instead we focus on what are, what are the key experiences we need to get feedback on from our potential customers or existing customers. And we need to get it in front of them as fast as possible. Like we should knock out these prototypes in a week and there shouldn't be one. It should be hopefully 10 or eight. Like let's stop this idea of oh, this is the right one, like we can afford to do A, B, C, D and create versions and I love being proven wrong. Like maybe I think this idea is the one, but um, with both um, doing rapid prototypes uh, that are interactive you know, on our device or even for me, I do landing pages and, and run uh, Facebook ads at them to see how many people are interested in signing up and getting some kind of feedback early on to make sure that the value prop is resonating is absolutely crucial to me. And so I wonder, you know, uh, as someone who works, you know, this question is directed back at you, you work at an agency, is, is this approach counterintuitive to the agency model because here we are at an agency, we want to charge as much as possible and get the scope of work and just make, you know, spend as much time on it, get them to buy in and then make it. Um, and so I find that uh, my approach uh, may be counterintuitive to the agency model because here we are trying to work with the client and say, we're gonna do experiments. Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, but instead of putting all our money into one basket, let's, let's try a couple of different things and, and see what kind of feedback we get and then go, you know, full bore into a specific direction. It's it's very challenging, I think. I mean, I think for the clients that we've worked with for a long time, which we, 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 what we're trying to move to is an advisor partner role, you know. So actually, most proc the procurement actually is the thing in, in a lot of big companies is actually it's all built around outputs. It's all built around outputs. Not around outcomes, it's just like, what are we going to get at the end of this period? And to be able to say, we're not quite sure, <laughs> but we think we're going to do these activities, these experiments, and at this point here, we're going to have to take a call on actually what to do next, requires a fairly sophisticated agency-client relationship, and it's, it's hard. It's hard. In a way, getting our... Most of my work is about trying to get the sponsors and procurement people just understand this is the way to work. I'm working with a big energy company at the moment where um, the product product owner is been fantastically successful in teaching procurement about actually this is a completely different way of working and you're going to have to trust us that actually this is going to produce better results. Um, but it's uh, 
But I think we have to think about different ways of sort of different engagement models. You know, actually, most engagement models that agencies create are uh, certainly design agencies are on projects. Then actually, we need to think more about programs and partnerships, and um, that requires that requires different skills. Actually, that that um, that's things like management consultancies and big these sort of the, these um, technology companies are pretty good at getting in there and saying we're going to be here for five years and you know actually we're yeah. part of your team and uh, design companies need to be able to do that because you can't do this in six months <laughs> you can't right. do this, you can't do this in two years often if you actually want to get something from end to end into the marketplace um, sorry I work with really big companies and so two years is aggressive in a lot of cases. Right. Um, right. In fact, I wanted to ask you a question about that. Is actually in terms of the um, so the framework and the I mean, there's a, uh, there's there's a lot of really practical sort of techniques and and tools that you've um, not just captured in the book, but you've made available, and we'll we'll provide a link to that. Um, it. I guess how different has it been between sort of start the sort of the world of startups as you sort of move towards enterprises and, and bigger companies and the way to think yeah, about this? Yeah, I have to admit it's it's kind of frustrating. You know, I, I know that the second edition of my book that I plan to write, I need to focus more on enterprise and B two B because um, that's really uh, the one thing missing uh, for my book was because most of the business cases were startups willing to, uh, you know, we were starting from scratch, we could do these experiments and they were open to risk. And in uh, an enterprise environment, it's not so much that way. However, um, the companies, enterprises uh, that I'm researching, that I'm attracted to are the ones that are focused on innovation. You know, the word innovation isn't a small word uh, in the subtitle of my book, it's a big word to me. So if someone wants to just make something that's a knockoff of another product out there, then I might not be the best person to do that. Sure, I can lead the UX phase, but if they want it to be a game changer, then we need to experiment. And what that means is you need to be with uh, corporations that adopt um, different ways to uh, for innovation. And I saw... Uh, Steve uh, Blank and Alex Osterwalder recently talk about innovation and the innovation horizons at at a workshop and how a lot of uh, enterprises have this thing called you know innovation theater you know where they have this shiny room and, and you can go in there and, and and oh look at all these really cool look things look at our labs look at these on. beautiful labs we've created right and or they do. Uh, you know, like Google, where they said, we're going to let you have two hours of your day where, or, or your week, maybe, <laughs> that you can work on something innovative, you know. Um, but, or they have, we're going to have a, a, a you know, an innovation culture, a culture of innovation, you know. And it's just, it's, it's just throwing around a buzzword. And, and ultimately, if you want to create innovative products, it, it needs to be embedded into the company culture in a genuine way. And so uh, recently I went to uh, this conference called uh, Conversion XL and it was all about uh, 
conversion and, and a lot about what I love is growth hacking. And I know it's a buzzword, but it's ultimately trying to get uh, companies um, really uh, understanding that to get new customers, that if they don't get new customers, that if they stay the same and, and stay just kind of floating in the ocean, uh, happy with what they have, they're going to they're going to be the next Kodak that um, we see so many aqua hires. Why Facebook and Google are so successful is because they buy startups like Waze or, or whatever and, and, and embed them into their companies. And, and like with Google, they let Waze exist on their own, but they use you know, the, the, the people that work there and, and the data that they mine from the apps to learn from. And I feel like we're going to see, I hope to see a change in Silicon Valley to start with um, and then, you know, worldwide where enterprises aren't afraid to let the people that work there be entrepreneurial, that they, we see more what's called balanced teams where we, yeah. or growth teams where it's not like let's jam the designers over there and the engineers over there, um, that these multi-functional teams or cross-functional teams have a marketing person engaged an analytics person engaged, a developer engaged, a designer engaged, working together ultimately to um, figure out, you know, do design, do design experiments, uh, do, do field research together. And a big thing I do is I require my clients to be with me on the field research and, to, and, and I just say, shut up and take notes, please. Uh, and keep keep your mouth you know closed and listen for for once and hear what these customers have to say, because I find that the traditional forms of user research um, and data collection um, don't give us a true picture of who our customers are and what their needs are. And so I, I, right now I'm, I'm looking for those opportunities to uh, where companies are open to experimentation and, you know, not just doing the, the tr they may have agile built into their development phase, but it needs to be built into the strategy phase as well. Wow. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more with that. I feel as though we could probably uh, get you back for another session if that would be okay. And maybe actually when you come across to visit us in the UK, uh, in the coming months, we can probably do this face to face. But look, uh, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today, Jamie. It's been um, it's been just fantastic to hear about the 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 history of the book and actually where the book's taken you. And um, uh, it'd be great if we can talk again soon. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me, Tim. Thank you, everybody, for listening.